Cross Country Consulting is a trusted advisor to Fortune 500 companies, emerging growth market leaders, and private equity sponsors. The firm solves today's most pressing challenges and creates present and future enterprise value with tailored, integrated solutions for accounting, risk, technology-enabled transformation, and transactions. Working as a strategic partner and collaborative part of your team, Cross Country helps you to see around corners to generate value for your business. The future-ready business, in sight and within reach. Go to crosscountry-consulting.com to learn more. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Welcome to Office Hours, where we sit down with the chief executives shaping the world and answer your most pressing questions about leadership, career, and life. I'm Mike Steib, and today we are hanging out with my good friend, Shashir Marotra. Shashir is the founder and CEO of Coda, the venture-backed startup that has created an amazing alternative to Word and Google Docs. He and I worked together previously at Google, where Shashir ran product engineering and UX for YouTube. He has previous experience at Microsoft and as an entrepreneur, sits on the board of Spotify, and is a thought leader on how teams work and collaborate. He's also an all-around terrific guy. And Shashir, I am thrilled to have you on the show today. Welcome aboard. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's been so much fun watching, uh, I think our journey started almost 15 years ago together and uh, lots of great experiences in between. I'm glad you're here. As you know, our listeners send in questions. There's stuff that they want to hear from you. And first question is from Nina in Tucson, Arizona. She says, you've both worked at some of the biggest tech companies and now lead earlier stage companies. What have you found is similar and what is different when the size of the company changes? And sure, maybe just tell everybody quickly sort of your background. I, I met you come when you were coming out of Microsoft and into Google, just so everybody has a good sense for, for what you're all about. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely done the, the full gamut of that big, huge company and the start from scratch in... Uh, in just a room with a few people. Um, so my career, I started out of college. I started a company called Centrata. Uh, that was in the data center automation space. I then went to Microsoft. So I spent a uh, number of years working on Windows, then Office, then SQL Server. And then in a weird set of circumstances, I ended up at Google uh, working with Mike on uh, television video. I ended up running the, the YouTube group there. Um, from about 2008 to 2014, really exciting time. And then I started Coda. Um, and Coda, we started as a new company to reimagine the document. We built an all-in-one document, but it's the best parts of documents, spreadsheets, presentations, and applications. 
into a single surface. So anyone can make a dock as powerful as an app. Tell everybody, like, what is it about these companies that are growing and changing the world and then something changes? And what, what, what have you seen in that part of your journey? So I joined Google in 2008. And the, at the time, you know, I was, I'd gone to Microsoft. I had thought of Microsoft a little bit as my big company education. And my initial reaction to all the Google outreach was, yeah, I'm not interested. I'm already at a big company. I'm going to go do something small. Uh, I had all these ideas in mind of what to go do. And uh, this guy named Jonathan Rosenberg was running product at Google at the time. Right. And he gave me the analogy that, that, that you just gave, which is that Google in 2008 felt like Microsoft in the, in the early 90s. And I think that was accurate. That, you know, at the time, Google was really a one product company just learning how to take its culture and apply it across other markets and divisions and categories and so on at the time. You know, uh, it was just really searching ads, and you know we hadn't right. done. You know, we just bought YouTube. We had you know started Maps. As Chrome was about to uh, launch, Android it was just still an early prototype, and all these things that now we take for granted as being synonymous with Google weren't there. And now it wasn't a small company. This was post IPO, multi multi billion yes. dollars of revenue, tens of yes. thousands of employees. But I remember Shashir, I, I, I had come from a from a big hundred year old company at. And when I came to Google, we needed we needed fifty million dollars for this deal that we wanted to do to jumpstart a business that had no revenue. And so I was sort of imagining what the bureaucratic process would be, and it was just going to see Eric and Larry and Sergey on a Thursday, and we got a yes in the meeting. Yeah. And I was like, "Well, what's the follow up?" And they were like, "Will you just spend it now?" It's, I couldn't believe the speed with which the company was willing to work and the and the, the absence of bureaucracy. And middle management, it was really wild. I, yeah, unfortunately, I don't think Google maintained that forever. But in that period, I think it was about as good as it could get in terms. And I think Eric is a wizard at managing chaos like that. And mm -hmm. I, he was just so good. I mean, I had a similar story. I came in and said, "I need twenty people to work on this." And I said, "You know, do I go to some approval body? Do I get it? Do I do I need to get some, uh, you know, some some official thing?" And I was told, no, if you can convince 20 people to work on it, then, then you have 20 people. And it was like this interesting, meritocratic, like, there's just sort of this assumption that if you screw up, there's other consequences and people will stop working on it and so on. But there was, you know, at the time, Google's whole ethos was speed of innovation was all that mattered. And Eric was excellent at, you know, supporting people on it. And it was, I thought it was really wonderful. Everything came from a place of yes, but th there's certainly consequences. I remember we had a client event one time and I ordered a uh, mechanical bull. And when there's no process in bureaucracy, there's no one to stop you from bringing the mechanical bull into the office. So we had clients <laughs> drinking and riding a mechanical bull. And in hindsight, like a lot could have gone wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, I don't know if you could run a company the same way today as, uh, as we did back then. Um, but it's, I mean, there's a lot to be, you know, the first era of Google was this magic in a bottle search engine that, that, that turned out to be, you know, really amazing, but many companies never make it past that phase. They never sure. make it into multiple categories and multiple new products and so on. And Google managed to make it through that chasm, which I think is remarkable. Right. And was, and, and you can also, you know, bureaucracy emerges as a way to maintain, you know, to avoid risk because risk is too expensive, but we were a company doing probably $20 million of free cash flow a day when you arrived. And there's a lot of room 
to, there's a lot of room to make mistakes and be able to pay for those mistakes rather than pay for them with added layers of bureaucracy and, yeah. you know, and slowness and poor culture and all that stuff. Yeah, for sure. Maybe I'll, I'll try to answer Nina's question. I mean, I think when I think about, and I, I don't know if I would say there's large companies or small companies, but there's also small projects within large companies. I think, you know, some of the stuff you and I worked on together in the video space was, you know, had some advantages of being at the big company, like like you mm-hmm. mentioned, it was easy to get approvals, but we were really, you know, a, a typical we're startup. We're still starting out, of, that's right. Yeah, I mean, you still had to define a market and find a customer and, and so on. And, you know, the best analogy I can give is, I had an old boss at Microsoft give me this uh, framework for thinking about the stages that products go through, and he called it joke, threat, obvious. He says, every product starts as a joke. Nobody believes in you. Nobody thinks it's for real. But then you become a threat and everybody responds. They've got their, you know, they've got their response features or their response go to market campaign or their response billboards, whatever it is. And then at some point you become obvious. And when you're obvious, everybody just kind of presumes you're going to win and continue to win and they sure, work around yeah. you. Right. And it's just, I got to be, um, at Google and particularly YouTube through all three phases. When I showed up, it, it's, I don't think I can understate how much people thought YouTube was Google's first big mistake. I mean, we, we paid $1.6 billion for this company. Yep. We were losing hundreds of millions of dollars a year. We were losing, mm-hmm. you know, almost pennies per view. The um, only good content was content that they were not allowed to have. The, the, there was, <laughs> uh, we had a billion <laughs> right, dollar somebody lawsuit. else's IP. <laughs> there was a huge Viacom lawsuit. Yeah, they yeah. That's right. And, and, and so we, we get this group together and it was totally, you know, you hear the analogy, a lot of pirates and Navy, but you get this group together that say, you know what? I think we can do this. I think there's a, I think there's a path. And then at some point, I think about three or four years in, all that started working, we got profitable. We figured out how to mm-hmm. grow revenue. We got through our, our agreements with the, with the recording industry and with the movie industry and so on. And all of a sudden it became threat. And everybody had their response to YouTube. And then at some point, it switched to being obvious. And, and the, and, you know, a lot of people think of that as like really awesome. And it is. I mean, it's, it's obviously the goal. It's like you, you're building this company. You want to get to that obvious stage, but there's downsides too. I mean, when's the last time you read a positive, positive press article about YouTube? I mean, the early days, we couldn't get anybody to write about us at all. And then all of a sudden <laughs> now, all you can see is negative, that negative things. Cause it's, you know, there's a sort of presumption that, of course, this thing is going to continue to be, to, to be big and useful and so on. So that people spend all their time looking for the flaws. So there's lots of pros and cons of each, but I think learning how to operate in all three phases, you know, what, what do you do when the, when the world thinks you're a joke? Mm-hmm. How do you respond when they decide you're a threat? And then what do you do to manage obvious? And I think Google did a really good job of taking that obvious stage and starting a bunch of jokes. And going and working its way back through that cycle. Well, this this actually parlays really well in our second question. So, uh, Ian in Burlington, Vermont asks us, Hello, can you talk about your products and how you knew when they had a product market fit? So, Shashir, here's where I admit to you, when you told me that you were going to do Google Docs, but there are also spreadsheets inside of it and other stuff, I was like, man, what's he What's he working on over there? <laughs> so I originally got the joke. I have come full cycle now. I'm a yeah. big fan of the product. But yeah. take a, take us through your your uh, joke joke to threat matrix. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the yeah. I mean, the early days of Coda, I got that reaction from everybody. They were building a new doc, and most people would say, "Why do we need a new doc?" And I would get right. all sorts of weird feature requests. 
And people would say, oh, yeah, that's really exciting. You know, Word is missing this one font that I really want. And I'd say, no, no, that's not what we're working on. <laughs> that's like, I don't think there's a category there of like the font that that's Word right. is missing. When, when uh, I try to download it as a PDF to print, like I don't yeah. like that it's two steps. <laughs> right, right, exactly. You, get this, you either get the why would you bother or a list of – because people can't picture it, right? It's like what, what, is, what does it sure. mean to, to have a brand new product in this category? And, you know, I Everybody wanted you, a faster horse. Everybody wanted a faster horse. And, the, and, and honestly, like that sounds, you know, in retrospect, sounds positive. Nobody could picture it. We could. That worked out well. But, you know, at the time, it just seems terrible. Right? People look at your product and they, and they, they just don't know what they, what they want. And, you know, so the early days of product market fit for us were really tough. I mean, and, and Coda is this interesting product where we often describe it as we have an incredibly low floor and incredibly high ceiling. So if you download, uh, sign up for Coda and you start using the app or use the, the website, you'll, it looks like a Google Doc. It's a blinking cursor, blank screen, just start typing and so on. But it's got all the building blocks inside of it so you can assemble the things that you normally would have had to use spreadsheets or presentations for or things that you needed to build full applications. And we see people build, you know, whole CRM systems in code or inventory systems and lots of tutors and and small businesses use it to build a clients and there's all sorts of interesting things to get built. But it's this product that looks like one thing and then operates in this totally different way as it grows with you. And so early on, we would see people, first off, just not know where to start and say, like, I, I don't I don't understand. Like I, I'm used to used to this other other tool set. Um, and then gradually we would get people through this this journey. I still remember our first customer. Um, we decided, actually, there's another side story we can come back to, is we decided to start the company in stealth, which is not something I recommend for every company, but it made sense for us. So we weren't telling anybody what we were doing. And so we were recruiting customers one by one. We recruit this customer. Um, it's an old friend of mine from Google who had started a new company. There were five or six people. And I said, hey, can you use Coda to run your team? And so they start using it. Uh, they ended up using their first use case was basically a project management use case. And they, they sort of planned out their work in it. And uh, and we would watch our dashboard. And our dashboard, they only had six people in the company. So our dashboard would go from zero to six. So like every day, it's like, how many of the six people use the product? <laughs> and I was like, that was it. That was like the max y-axis was six. And one day, this goes from six to zero. And we're like, we're a very daily use product. Like it's hard to use Coda and not use it every single day. And so it goes to zero. And like, ooh, that's not good. And we wait another day. It still stays at zero. And I call my buddy, the CEO, Noam. And I say, um, hey, you know, I just wanted to check in how things are going. And, uh, you know, I noticed that you guys haven't been using the product much the last couple of days. Wanted to know if something happened. Are you guys like doing an offsite or something? Um, and he says, yeah, you know, I've been kind of avoiding calling you. And he says, I have good news and bad news. And I said, OK, well, give it to me. Let's, let's do bad news first. So, well, the bad news is we had a team meeting and the team said that if I make them keep using uh, Coda, they're all going to quit. And I was like, well, that's, that's like a pretty bad news. <laughs> Feedback is a gift. <laughs> like, that's pretty bad news. I said, what's the good news? And he says, well, the good news is they've all fallen completely in love with your mission and they totally get it, but they have this list of things that you have to do before they will consider reusing the product. And honestly, if you can fix these in like two weeks, we'll start again. But, you know, up to you. This is good news and bad news. And it was just like really like, you know, first off, Big kick in the stomach, 
because you like your 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 entire right. user base evaporates in one day, sure. <laughs> and then you've got this like deep conflict on you know do we do this set of things or go address the woes on our roadmap or so on. But you know, in my mind, for our product, product market fit felt like we could tell. I mean, this is not a product where you could force anybody to use it. There was no like lackadaisical users. Like you either used it, loved it, and evangelized it, right. or you gave up. But the real moment for us when we started getting calls that said, hey, I know you have me limited to my team. Can I expand it to this other team? And there was in particular a moment with uh, our first large customer was Uber. And it was a moment where the our main sponsor, this guy named Yuki Yamashita. Yuki's now uh, the head of product for Figma. So we carry coded there as well. Mm-hmm. But he called up and he said, you know, I've been assigned this project. Um, I'm going to, this was back in... 2018, he had been assigned the project to fix Uber's reputation with drivers. You may remember this time period. Oh, yeah. A bunch of, bunch of issues with drivers and, and, uh, and, uh, he, his job was to roll out a feature a day to address everything drivers had ever asked for. And he said, he said to me, uh, we've been using Coda for a bit and I'm quite convinced that if we don't have Coda, we will fail. And if we do have Coda, then we'll succeed. And, and it was like this sign of like, oh, we are, we've crossed into right. the pull, this feeling of people want the product. They're, they're ready to evangelize it. And so that, that was, that was our, and that was probably our, that, for, that was your customers. product market. That was your product market. That was definitely the moment. People were demanding it. People yeah. went from threatening to quit to demanding the product. Exactly. Well, exactly. I'd say for, for Ian, uh, in, in my business, it was much, we got a bunch of, Artsy is a marketplace for art. And before I got to the company, we'd gotten tons of galleries around the world to upload art to Artsy. And we'd gotten tons of like millions of people to come visit Artsy and look at that art. We weren't selling it. So for us, product market fit really happened when someone was paying us at a unit at unit economics that were scalable and would take our business to profitability and what we had to do to to get there was build globally a layer of transactional capabilities so that you could not only find the art and this was this was the hard part in the tech stack you could not only find the art you could with confidence click a button buy the art and have it show up in your home a week later and then when all, when the painting started showing up in people's homes thanks to the products we had built that's when we really that's when we really had product market fit and it's and Shashir, as I'm sure you you'd advise it's it, it's a little bit different for every company but it's either some moment when the users will go to the end of the earth for it Right. It's not when somebody says they like a thing. It's when you say, if I took it away, how would you feel? Or it's when someone opens up their wallet and says, I, you know, this is so important to me that I'll, uh, I'll pay you for it. Cross-country consulting is a leading provider of specialized finance, operations, and technology advisory services. As a trusted advisor to Fortune 500 companies, emerging growth market leaders, and private equity sponsors, the firm solves today's most pressing challenges and creates present and future enterprise value with tailored, integrated solutions for accounting, risk, technology-enabled transformation, and transactions. They are a distinctly different type of advisory firm founded on a core set of values and an unwavering commitment to creating a better experience for their people. Their unique culture enables them to attract and retain the best talent in the industry, who in turn provide exceptional service to their clients. Working as a strategic partner and collaborative part of your team, Cross Country helps you to see around corners to generate value for your business. Headquartered in Washington, D.C., Cross Country has employees across the United States. 
and in strategic international locations. The future-ready business, insight and within reach. Go to crosscountry-consulting.com to learn more. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Devin in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina says, I'm not a tech person, and I would just love to understand how all this stuff works. Like the recommendations on YouTube and in my music app. Like, can you just take me through what's like under the hood of these products? So, Shashir, you go first. You've seen some really, I mean, you've been on the under the hood in some really awesome products. Help somebody who doesn't code get an appreciation for what is the thing doing when they're having a great user experience. Yeah, and it was interesting when I... Um when I got to YouTube, the uh, you know I would meet people regularly and say I work on YouTube, and and they they would say, "What do you mean? Like you create content? Like what does that what does that even mean?" Because I think people's perception of these products is like, "What is behind the the thing you see, the the recommendations you see, the video that's playing, and so on?" It's like hard to tell what is what is all these what are all the things that are happening there, and and so first off, there's there's way Which more is why, it. by the way, non-tech companies are always like, well, oh, we'll just hire some tech people. Yes. We already have the market share, right? We already have the brand. We'll just hire some tech people. You're like, okay, like, good luck. Yeah. And, and I think- This stuff I think is that, hard. Right. I mean, I think the feeling of like, it's a website. It plays video. How hard could it be? It's like, well, there's thousands of engineers sitting behind it, building every element of, of, of what, what happens there. And, you know, it's really hard to like, we, at, while I was at YouTube, our-, our uh, our, our benchmark said we streamed about 20% of the, of the bits on the internet came to the YouTube servers. So it's like one thing that can you, can you stream and send a video file to someone else across the world? Like maybe can you do it and fill up 20% of the internet? Like now you've got a whole different scale of things sure. to look at. Um, you know, YouTube was and still is the number two search engine in the world behind Google. Um, and so, you know, how do you answer queries for people at scale? It's like another great, uh, engineering challenge. AI is a and and recommendations and so on is a is a particularly interesting topic. The um, and I often tell people that there's less magic than you might think. And you know one of my one of my favorite stories about this is my my father is a computer scientist and I got to to college and I told him hey uh, I'm going to go do a internship at um, uh, at MIT. We had this group called the AI Lab and uh, he said you can't do anything at the AI Lab. That's where all the jokers hang out. And like, really, what does that mean? And he said, well, you know, AI, this is back in the 90s. He says, AI is like, that's where all the stuff that doesn't work hangs out. And he had a, a particular way of describing it. He said, just think about it. Everything, the moment it works, we no longer think it's AI. And in those days, <laughs> like, it, you know, I'll give, like a simple example I would give my kids is, you, you, you know, you're driving along, you come to a traffic light, 
how does it know when to turn red or green? And, you know, it's kind of obvious. If there's a sensor underneath the, underneath the pavement and it says, is there a car here or not? And it decides I'm going to turn red or green. And because I can explain it, it doesn't seem like AI. But if I just told you that I built this totally amazing system that automatically routes traffic through, through an area, like it feels like AI. And so a lot of AI is actually that. It's actually things that when you explain exactly what they do, they aren't really that, that complicated. Mm -hmm. So as an example, uh, you know, recommendations on YouTube, the predominant signal for recommendations on YouTube is what's called co-watch. And it says that we make, we, there's a big database that says, here's everybody and what they watched. And you just look and say, people who watch this also watch this. Yes. Um, and, you know, Amazon's pretty famous for a similar technique. It's often called collaborative filtering. This slow realization that none of us is a unique and beautiful snowflake. Like, you watch the you watch these three videos and someone else did. You're both going to watch the same fourth. You're going to watch the same fourth. And it turns out to be usually quite right. And, you know, if you go and you say you can now put on a bunch of other signals of, like, people who are like you in some other way may also watch something. But it turns out, like, the core of a recommendations engine like that is actually quite simple. Every episode now, we've got an AI question. It's either, is AI going to uh, help me make more money or is it going to put me out of business? So this one is just Soraya in uh, Irvine, California wants to know, How is AI impacting your companies and how is it impacting your products? I'm going to come back to Coda in a second, but I think it's probably worth just talking a little bit about this wave of AI and why it's different. That I mentioned earlier, my mm -hmm. dad's view was, you know, anything that's labeled AI is the stuff that doesn't work. Because the moment you understand how it works, it's no longer called AI. All of that flipped. And in the last 10 years, we've seen a wave of innovation that stayed within AI. And so now we've got a much, uh, much broader set of impact happening with, with the AI advances today. The, the core one that everybody's excited about today is what we now refer to as generative AI. And it was the, the core insight was started with a uh, research project at Google called Transformers. Um, and again, back to the idea that some of these things are simpler than you might think. So the Transformers uh, paper came out of the group that focuses on translation. Um, and so if you think about translation as a problem, so it's an interesting thing. To, it's one of the um, most valuable, but also simplest problems to think of in what we can do with natural language AI is I'm going to take something that's written in English and I want to turn it into French. So what's the best way to do that? You go read the internet and you go find every web page that has been translated between different languages and you say, here's, here it is in English, here it is in French, here it is in Spanish, here it is in Japanese, so on. And you start to figure out that what the patterns are. And the idea of Transformers was they learned one very special trick was that they could teach this machine to train itself by guessing the next word in a sentence. So it would say, here's the first 10 words, guess the 11th word. And so, for example, it would say, uh, these are the first 10 words in English, um, these are the first 10 words in French, now guess the 11th word in French. And it would go quickly around the internet and say, ooh, I saw those 10 words over there, the 11th word was this one, and so I'm going to assume that the 11th word in French is the same from that translated page. And dramatically oversimplifying what it has to do at huge scale, back to the earlier point. But this, this idea of predict the next word turns out to be, you know, just like co-watch signal is a really simple idea. Predict the next word is a, is a really simple idea. Doing it at scale is really, really, really hard. And they figured out that the heart of the paper was figuring out how to do it at scale. Now, I think for most of us, this caused AI 
to, to shift gears in one very specific way. It went from a thing behind the curtain to in front of the curtain. And up till now, AI was one of those things that's like fancy engineers do. It was one of these things that you couldn't, you could see the output of it. Like you got better YouTube recommendations and Spotify gave you better songs and so on, but you didn't feel like you could interact with it. And then ChatGPT came out and all of a sudden we all felt like we could talk to this thing. And so I, I like to say this wave of AI had actually two innovations. They had a, a, a fundamental AI innovation with transformers and being able to predict the next word, but it also has a UI innovation in that we all suddenly felt like this is no longer a product for developers, it's a product for all of us. Right. Finally, okay. AI had a good publicist. AI had a good publicist, right? AI, and and the and that's been, you know, obviously you'd have to be living under a rock to not not have seen that. The uh, so that that I think it's a, it's a much bigger change than we've seen in the past with AI, and it has caused every product and every company to rethink its approach. So for Coda, you know, I think that there's there's a few different layers of how we think about it. The, the most basic layer is Coda is a document. We have to be able to do what we call be a great writing assistant. So if the the heart of this AI was built around help you predict the next word this thing should be able to help you write. And certainly the way that AI shows up in Coda first is a writing assistant that helps you finish your sentences. It can write your whole page for you. You can go and check all your errors, go and check uh, grammar and, and so on. I kind of think of it as like, you know, the, the, the next generation of spell check. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that as a, you'd be crazy to have a writing surface these days that doesn't doesn't, doesn't do this, doesn't have a writing assistant. And actually yep. back to the point, like we, none of us would call Spellcheck AI, but when Spellcheck came out, it was absolutely AI. I mean, it's the, the, you know, the yep. core idea of like, help me figure out how to present myself better was, was felt like an AI promise. We can kind of understand how it works. We can call it AI. Um, so that's the basic thing we do, but there's two other things we do that I think are, are maybe less intuitive. Um, so the first is we realize that AI in the workplace has an extra challenge. And that is that I don't want something that just can answer questions from the internet. I need something that can answer questions from my work. And it turns out that Coda is a particularly good place to do that. So one of the features of Coda is that uh, it's an all-in-one surface. We blend all these different surfaces together in one place. We can also synchronize with every different application in your company. It's about 600 different, we call them packs, with 600 different connectors that have been built to connect Coda to, from everything from Slack and Gmail to Salesforce and Jira. And you can pull all that into your documents. And so the first thing we did was we said, we want to build an assistant that works inside of your the core surface you're in all day long, inside of your documents and actually understands your data. And so this is, the, the, we spent a lot of energy on integrating our integrations with our AI system. And then the second thing we did is we said, it's one thing to be able to ask questions. And it's great to be able to come into this thing and ask a question and say, you know, uh, what what's um, uh, not only like, you know, what's the capital of France, but you know, who's the CEO of this company that I'm about to talk to? Or what's the most important meeting on my schedule today? Or so on. So you can ask all those types of questions but the other half of what we want to be able to do is actually take action. And so we put a lot of energy into making an AI assistant that knows your actual work, but also is capable of performing real actions for you. What OpenAI did is we moved from AI being for developers to AI being for users. We're trying really hard to make AI a product for makers. There's people that live in the middle of that world. Say, I don't just want to chat with something and get answers. I got work to do. I need to know what I'm doing. I need to do stuff for me. That's what we've been doing. 
So and we've, um, for our listeners who've heard previous podcasts, so we spent a lot of time with Perkins Miller a couple weeks ago on how uh, the AI tools are also impacting productivity internally. We've talked about how Copilot is helping engineers move faster, how it's helping content creations teams make uh, content a lot faster. And I'll just, I'll only reiterate here the, the advice we've gotten in the past is as professionals, if you're building products, I, I'm sure you're out there thinking a lot about how AI feeds into your product. A lot of folks are not thinking about how AI should be helping them do a better job at their job. And I'm, just, I'm strongly encouraging everyone, get the add-ons for your browser, spend a lot of time in ChatGPT. It won't be useful to you the first 10 times. You've got to start to find the right way to prompt it and the right way to put it to work. But you should be able to shave 10 hours off of your week every week by using these tools properly. For sure. For sure. Cross-Country Consulting is a leading provider of specialized finance, operations, and technology advisory services. As a trusted advisor to Fortune 500 companies, emerging growth market leaders, and private equity sponsors, the firm solves today's most pressing challenges and creates present and future enterprise value with tailored, integrated solutions for accounting, risk, technology-enabled transformation, and transactions. They are a distinctly different type of advisory firm founded on a core set of values and an unwavering commitment to creating a better experience for their people. Their unique culture enables them to attract and retain the best talent in the industry, who in turn provide exceptional service to their clients. Working as a strategic partner and collaborative part of your team, Cross Country helps you to see around corners to generate value for your business. Headquartered in Washington, D.C., Cross Country has employees across the United States and in strategic international locations. The future-ready business, insight and within reach. Go to crosscountry-consulting.com to learn more. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Oscar in St. Louis asks, At the growth stages, when uh, companies are moving fast and things are very dynamic, how do you organize the team and keep everyone aligned? And this just here is where you're big on the rituals and behaviors of, uh, and the culture of the organization itself. Give everybody your overall thesis here and, 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 a, and a couple concrete examples. Yeah. So uh, maybe as context for everyone, um, I'm writing a book. It's called Rituals of Great Teams. Um, and it's kind of a... When's it coming out? Know, <laughs> Hopefully early next year. Yeah. So do, I, I, sound not, like, do I, I sound like your publisher? You sure. Like publisher. When are we getting yeah, the book? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, that, that said, if you go to ritualsofgreatteams.com, I'm, uh, I'm writing it in the open. So you can go, I publish a chapter at a time. So you can go see what they, 
what they look like, and I'm about 60% of it or so is available for people to read. It's actually kind of fun. A couple thousand people are in there co-editing it with me, which is kind of a, a nice way to, 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 to write a book. But anyway, back to so the thesis of this book started with a conversation I had with a friend of mine, Bing Gordon. Um, and people who don't know who Bing is, he is one of the founders um, or the chief creative officer at Electronic Arts um, and is now a famous investor, Zynga, Amazon, many great companies. He and I sat on a board together and he kept harassing the CEO with this question. He said, what are your golden rituals? And this, the CEO kind of struggled to answer a little bit. And at one point, one of us said, hey, Bing, what, what's a golden ritual? And he gave us this really clear um, rubric. He said, great companies have the smallest of golden rituals. They have three criteria. Number one, they're named. Number two, every employee knows them by their first Friday. And number three, they're templated. Mm-hmm. And he immediately rattled off his examples. Amazon has six pagers. Google has OKRs. Salesforce yep. has V2 Mom. So on. And, and it just turned out to be this really sticky idea for me, this idea of, of ritual. So um, this happened right before the pandemic started. Uh, I started getting, I started talking about this on, on a few podcasts and talked about it. I was talking to some customers and people started sending me rituals and say, oh, if you're really interested in this topic, you should, you should hear more about this. And it's become this like weird hobby of mine. Like people have all sorts of normal hobbies. I have some normal hobbies too, but this has become <laughs> my like nights and weekends hobby is collecting rituals. And uh, one of the key things we did was we started doing this dinner series. So every uh, about three weeks, starting at the beginning of the pandemic, we would get a group of 10 to 15 people together and say, just share your rituals. And people from small companies, big companies, you know, all sorts of different disciplines and functions and, and, and so on. And at this point, we've taken about a thousand different rituals. We whittled them into about a hundred of my favorite ones. And that's the, that's what this book is about. Rituals of great teams. Um, and there's a couple interesting observations about this. You know, one, one, the first thing I would share is that, you know, one of my favorite stories, Darmesha is the founder of HubSpot. He comes to one of these dinners and he shared a ritual called flash text. It's kind of a fun ritual. You can go read more about it. Um, but then he starts getting really excited about rituals. And he gave this analogy I really like. He said, as a company, we build two products. We build one for our customers. We build another one for our employees. The one we build for our employees, we often call that culture. But if you ask somebody to, de- to describe culture, they will often describe it with rituals. They'll say, oh, we have this value. Here's how it works. And so from that perspective, rituals aren't just the operating system of how you get stuff done and how you keep your team organized, keep everybody aligned and so on. It's actually a two-way mirror to your culture. I couldn't agree more with the thesis of the Golden Rituals. I've seen it work at my company too. I have not read the first 60% of your book, but I will for our listeners. I'll drop that link in the show notes. Um, you also referenced your eigen questions, which we're not going to be able to get into today. There's just been so much good stuff. I'm going to drop that in the show notes as well. There's been a Shashir, a ton of amazing content today. I knew this would happen getting together with you. And this has been a blast. Thank you, buddy. So fun, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was terrific. Congrats on all the progress you've made with Coda. For folks who haven't tried it, it's really phenomenal software. It it, it it's not only makes it easier to create your content, you actually get to better answers because of the tools that Jashir and his team are building. And uh, drop into the show notes and check it out. I think you'll really enjoy it. And Jashir, thank you, buddy. I'll see you again soon. Thanks, Mike. You know, Gag, one of the things that I've observed about just about all of our conversations is that 
The folks who come on Office Hours have not only achieved success through building great products or bringing great products or services to market, they've also been extremely thoughtful about the systems and processes and cultures that they create in their teams or in their companies or even in their own lives. And you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who's as good as Shashir is at creating these processes and, as he called it today, these golden rituals that help to organize his team, that help to give everyone a shared language and shared tools for solving problems. And if I'd leave you to think about something, what are those golden rituals in your organization? And what are they for you in your life? or in your family. I know we have some that keep my kids organized on the weekends. I know I personally have some that make sure that you know my health and my fitness get as much attention as my development and my work and everything else. I'm going to link these in the show notes and encourage you to check it out and, and, and do come back and ask yourself, what should these rituals be in my personal life and for my team? I think that you will find that you're able to unlock some productivity, some better alignment, some better velocity in the things that you do. I want to thank Shashir for coming on the pod. It's great to see my friend again. And of course, I want to thank Jen, Kara, Jada, Meg, Matt, the whole team at Blue Duck Media for pulling this all together. I want to thank Dylan and Sasha Gay, Nathan and Christine at iHeart, and Ben and the team at William Morris Endeavor for all their support. Office Hours is a production of Blue Duck Media and distributed by iHeart Radio. I will see you next week, everybody. Make sure you stay on your grind. Cross Country Consulting is a trusted advisor to Fortune 500 companies, emerging growth market leaders, and private equity sponsors. The firm solves today's most pressing challenges and creates present and future enterprise value with tailored, integrated solutions for accounting, risk, technology-enabled transformation, and transactions. Working as a strategic partner and collaborative part of your team, Cross Country helps you to see around corners to generate value for your business. The future-ready business, in sight and within reach. Go to crosscountry-consulting.com to learn more. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.